It's the third Sunday of Advent, right? So, uh, and this time of year is often one that brings a lot of joy, a lot of fun. We got lights and music and traditions and kids dressing up in costumes and doing programs, and it's great. It can be a lot of fun, but it can also be a stressful time of year. The calendar is crazy. It's busy. Uh, it can be expensive this time of year. And some other traditions, some of your memories of the holidays may not all be positive, and you might be experiencing some pain this time of year, whatever that might look like for you. And so you might be coming in this morning, and you might be stressed out, weary, tired, just kind of dragging yourself in here this morning. And if that's you, I hope that you can join me in taking comfort in knowing that you're in the right place. That the church, this place, is not for healthy people who've got their life all figured out, everything under control, everything locked down, but rather this is a place for people who are fallen and who are finite, people who are tired and need refreshment. It's a place for people who need help to keep living their life and to keep running their race. I know uh, I'm not one of them, but uh, I know there are people in this church who run marathons. Um, I probably should. But uh, there are people in this church who run marathons, and during the course of that race, every couple of miles, there is an aid station. And at these stations, there's water and other fluids, and there's food, there's protein. And there's also people there who encourage you to keep on going. And so that is what... That's what happens during a marathon, every couple miles. And you get your water, you get your food, you get your encouragement, and you keep going. And a couple more miles, and you get another aid station. And then another, and then finally, eventually, you cross that finish line. And that's what our Sunday mornings are for. They're little aid stations for us along the way in our life as we are running our race, where we are refreshed by God's word, we're energized by the gospel, and we're encouraged by our brothers and sisters that we get to see and talk to here and worship with on a weekly basis. And so here on Sunday mornings, there's, we hear sobering news, right? We hear about how we are fallen, how we are sinners, how we often choose to worship created things and not the creator, how too often we're selfish, we covet what other people have, we're jealous, we're not content, We're quick to anger, and we're slow to forgive. We're reminded that we're fallen. We're also reminded that we're finite, that we don't have boundless stores of energy, that we don't have everything figured out, that as capable as we aren't as capable as we wish we were, we have unexpected bills. We're just kind of crushed with things outside of our control, and we're reminded of how little control we have over our life but we don't stay and wallow in that bad news or that sobering news. But every Sunday we're washed over with good news. We're washed with the gospel in word, in song, in prayer, in sacrament, in fellowship with one another. And that good news is that Jesus Christ, the promised king, he has not failed. He has not fallen And he is not finite like us, but he is infinite. 
He is in control. He is sovereign. He is sitting on the throne, and he rules and reigns over everything. And not just that, but he cares deeply for his people. He cares for us. He loves us. And he loves us so much that he came for us. He died for us. He rose for us. And he will return for us. And that is good news for the weary souls that may be in this room this morning. And it's the good news that we're celebrating all throughout this month of December. We've been taking each week within the month of Advent and looking at these different aspects, these different movements of the life of Christ. Two weeks ago, that might have been what you would consider sort of a normal Christmas service. We were considering the incarnation of Christ, his birth, his taking on human nature, the second person of the Trinity coming to earth to be with his people, Emmanuel, God with us. And last week, that might be a sermon you'd expect to hear on Good Friday, one that was focused on the atonement, on Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, being pierced for our transgressions, wounded for our sins, making purification for us on the cross. And now we come to this week. This week might be a sermon you'd expect to hear on Easter, where we're going to be focused on the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. For we remember that though he died for us, he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose, and 40 days later, he ascended back into heaven. What we've looked at the past two weeks, the incarnation and the atonement, are what theologians call the humiliation of Christ, Christ's humiliation. And it's not that he was embarrassed or ashamed by anything he did. That's not what that word means, but rather that he humbled himself, that he gave up his divine rights and privileges to be like us, to identify with his people, to represent his people, to suffer and die for his people. And so we turn from Christ's humiliation to Christ's exaltation. That is his victorious resurrection, and his glorious ascension, his coming back to life and his returning to heaven. And what we want to see this morning is that Christ's exaltation, it provides power for us to live right now, and it gives us hope for the future. Both his resurrection and his ascension empower us to live in the here and the now, and his resurrection and ascension give us life, give us hope for the life to come. We've been using uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 this month as sort of our our starting point for considering these four movements of Christ. And we're going to do that again this morning. I'm going to read those verses that we've been reading over the last two weeks, and then I'm going to also read a couple of other passages, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament that point to and touch on his resurrection and his ascension. And we're going to be bouncing around the New Testament a good deal today to explore and unpack his exaltation this morning. But first, let's start. I'm going to read from Philippians and then Hosea and then Acts, and then we'll pray. So first, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. And finally, this Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let's pray. Father, we are eternally grateful that Christ humbled himself. We are thankful for his humiliation, how he became God incarnate, and how he atoned for our sins on the cross. And Lord, today, help us to meditate on and rejoice in his exaltation, in his resurrection and his ascension, his athronement. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning in Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your word, the wondrous things that it shows us about Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. So first, this morning, we're going to consider how the resurrection provides us with power to live our life today. As I already mentioned last week, we looked at his death on the cross, the atonement, and it's absolutely necessary. His death is absolutely necessary for our salvation. But the resurrection is as necessary for our salvation as his death. We see this in Romans 4, verse 25. And I'm going to go, as I'm going through here, I'm going to say some scripture and quote some scripture. If you want to turn to it, you can. If you just want to listen or jot them down, that's fine. But to see that his resurrection is necessary for our salvation, we start with Romans 4, 25, which says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, referring to his death, and that he was raised for our justification. That's his resurrection. And this verse shows us that Christ's death alone would not have been sufficient. He needed to die for our sins, yes, absolutely, but he also needed to be raised for our justification. And elsewhere, we see that the resurrection is a central component of the gospel, and perhaps most notably in 1 Corinthians 15, the first couple verses of that chapter. And that whole chapter is one that is just devoted and rich with truth and teaching about the resurrection. And we're going to touch on it a couple times this morning. But I want to read the first four verses so that you get a sense of the importance of the resurrection when it comes to what the gospel is. 
So Paul writing here says, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel in which we stand and by which we are being saved includes not only that Christ died for us, but that Christ was raised. And notice, as you were listening to those verses, a couple of times it was mentioned that he died in accordance with the scriptures and that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures, meaning that the resurrection fulfills or is in accordance with, in particular, the Old Testament, which would have been the scriptures at that time. So, for example, one of the verses I read to start was Hosea 6, verse 2, which just read and talks about rising on the third day. And the prophet Hosea used those, that imagery, the three days, to indicate the amount of time that the people of Israel would undergo punishment for their sins in exile, which of course corresponds with and parallels with how long Jesus was struck down for our sins. And then of course there's the familiar story of Jonah who was in the belly of the fish deep in the sea for three days just as Jesus was in the heart of the earth for three days. And so the resurrection of Christ is a fulfillment of Old Testament shadows pointing to a Messiah and is at the very heart of the gospel. It is how we are saved. But how was Christ raised and why? Well, as you may recall, a couple months ago when we started our series on Galatians, the very first verse in the book of Galatians, that letter of Paul, we are told that it is God the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And we also hear this from Paul in another letter, this one to Timothy. He says, God was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So when we consider these and other verses together, we can conclude that God the Father approved of the perfect life and sacrificial death of God the Son, and this obedience was vindicated by bringing Jesus back to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. We see all three persons of the Trinity involved here. And if this had not happened, if Jesus was not resurrected, if his life and death were not vindicated and not accepted as payment for us, we would still be dead in our sins. Our faith would be futile. But our faith is not in vain. Our trust is not in a dead hero, a good man who did good things, who is still in the grave, but rather it is in a living Savior. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of our faith and is the foundation of our, sancti- of our justification, but it is also the foundation for our sanctification. The resurrection gives us power to live lives of righteousness right now that are pleasing to God. 
And how does, how does it do this? When Romans, Paul, we're using a lot of Paul this morning. Now we're in Romans, Romans 8, verse 11. Paul tells us that the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead also dwells in believers. So the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead indwells each one of us. And it gives life to our mortal bodies. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus regenerates us, gives us new lives, makes us new creations. He empowers us to obey God. Uh, We see this quite vividly in Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses of that chapter, where it starts off with the bad news that we are dead in our trespasses and sins following after the evil one and obeying our sinful desires, which sounds like a pretty hopeless and helpless condition. And it is, save for two words that Paul uses that are some of the most beautiful words in the Bible, but God. God intervenes. But God, in his rich mercy, made us alive together with Christ. That is, through our spiritual union with Christ, we have been crucified with him and we have been raised with him. We have been made alive in him. And we are now able to live a life of good works because of that spirit who dwells within us. He doesn't just, he doesn't just um, keep us from doing bad things and saying no to temptation. He certainly does do those things. But he also gives us new desires. We now hate sin and want to do good. We want to do righteous acts that benefit others and are pleasing to God. His spirit empowers us to walk in the ways of Jesus and not in the ways of sin. And next month, when we resume our study of Galatians, our sermon on Galatians, we're going to explore this more. But the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, produces fruit in the lives of Christians. And our lives then will exhibit these things. They'll exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As hard as it may be to believe sometimes, we have the power to live that kind of life right now through the power of the Spirit that dwells within us. Not our own strength, but through the power of the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So walk by the Spirit, friends. Ask for the Spirit to give you those desires to help you bear that fruit in your life. Ask him for the power to love God and to love others. Christ's resurrection provides that kind of power for life today, but Christ's resurrection also provides hope for the future. Because of Christ's resurrection from the dead, we can have assurance that our bodies too will be resurrected one day. Back to 1 Corinthians 15, 20. It says there that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits is kind of a 
kind of an odd term, but what it's talking about is, it's talking about the first fruit or the first produce or the first grain of a big harvest, what a farmer would see to give him confidence that more is on the way. And so Christ's resurrection is the first of many resurrections that are to come. Those who are united to Christ by faith, even though they die, they will be made alive. We too will be resurrected. We who lived and died with perishable bodies will be given imperishable bodies upon his return. Our bodies will be freed from the curse of sin and death, from sickness and pain, and from weakness and decay. We have that hope for the future. And so today, if you are suffering now, or you have a loved one who is suffering now, suffering physically in their body, or in their mind, or both, you can cling to the hope of the resurrection. That our bodies will be made new, will be glorified, will be freed from the curse of sin, that we will no longer have tears or pain or sorrow anymore. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, we read these words with respect to that final resurrection of all believers, of all of God's people. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you have experienced the death of someone close to you, if you've mourned a loss, or if you've been with someone who has mourned the loss of someone close to you, you know that now death does sting. There is a sting. But death in this life does not have the final word. Though while it may sting now, Christ was victorious over death. And so will all those who are united to Christ by faith. Though they die, yet they will live forever. So the resurrection gives us hope for that kind of future. Forty days after his resurrection, with his disciples looking on, Jesus was taken up right before their eyes, ascending and returning to heaven, where he is living and reigning now, at the right hand of God the Father. We typically often think in the church, we reflect on, we talk about, we preach about, we pray a lot about Christ's actions in the past, right? We talk about his life, his death his resurrection, those things that have happened in the past, historic events, beautiful, wonderful, massively important events. But we also must remember, we must not forget that what Jesus did in the past is not all there is, that Jesus is still acting today to ensure that his people are saved and arrive home 
And so just like his resurrection, Christ's ascension provides power for us to live today. Jesus right now is interceding for you and for me, for his people in heaven. Here's what Hebrews 7 verses 23 through 25 says. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He lives to make intercession for them, for us, for you, for me. That is what he is doing right now. What, is, what does intercession mean? It's a churchy word, right? It's essentially, so if you have uh, a third party that's coming between two other parties and is acting or intervening on behalf of another so uh, an illustration here uh, that, I had, that I'd read about this was, was the idea of an agent for an athlete, a sports athlete, right? And so I um, was thinking about what's been going on recently. I'm a sports fan. Um, I don't know if there's any baseball fans in the room anymore. Uh, but uh, there was recently a major contract that was signed in the baseball world by a guy, by a guy named Shohei Otani. Uh, and this guy made $700 million dollars in his contract, which I would like. That sounds good. (laughs) So in baseball, you're usually paid because you do one or two things well, right? You're paid because you you can hit the ball really far or you can throw the ball past people who can hit the ball really hard, right? You're either paid because you can hit or you can pay because you can throw. Well, this guy can do both. And he can do both at a really high level. He can do this. He can do both better than just about everyone else playing baseball right now. And so he was paid like he's one of the greatest to do it, right? So he had an agent who represented him. And just to be honest, this agent's job wasn't that hard, was it? Um, I'm representing one of the best players to ever play baseball. Uh, Would you like him on a team? Yes, you would. Now let's talk about money. This This is not a big sell. It's not a tough sell to try to convince teams that this guy should be on your team. The agents that have... A harder job are those that represent players who can't hit the ball very well or who can't throw very fast. Their job's a lot harder. And spiritually speaking, we don't hit the ball very far and we don't throw the ball very fast. In fact, we strike out quite a bit. So what agent would represent us? But our status before God the Father is more secure, it's more guaranteed than any massive contract in sports or entertainment or anywhere else. And it's because our status before God the Father is not based on our performance, which may be good last year, but not so good five years from now. We don't rest on what we did, what we have done, or what we convince God we will do in the future, but whether we rest in what Jesus has already done for us. 
And so that's how Jesus' heavenly intercession works. Jesus is interceding for us based on what he has accomplished through his life, his death, and his resurrection. The son is able to point to himself (laughs) as evidence, as justification for why our sins can be forgiven. He was delivered up for our sins and he was raised for our justification. His presence in heaven is a continual reminder that it is finished. All that has to be done for us has been done for us. And the Father is pleased to hear and respond to the Son's intercession and grant favor to us because of Jesus. So atonement is what Jesus has done in the past, but his continually interceding for us is how he's applying that to us now and into the future. And it gives us great power to keep on moving. Jesus is also our advocate. This is from 1 John. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Similar to one who intercedes, an advocate is somebody who stands along and with somebody else, who goes to bat for them. Didn't mean to continue the baseball analogy, but here we are. When we sin, even though we don't deserve it, Jesus is standing with us before the Father. The righteous one stands with the unrighteous ones. We saw just a few minutes ago about how the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us, and so we have new desires. We want to obey God. We want to do things that please him, that serve others. But we also know that we are not completely free from our battle with the flesh and our sinful desires. We continue to live in this fallen world. And Jesus, make no mistake, Jesus, Jesus hates our sin. He hates sin. He wants us to put our pride and our selfishness, our idolatry to death. So these are not light matters. We shouldn't take them lightly. We should be working hard by the power of the Spirit to live righteous lives that are pleasing to him. But when our flesh wins, when we succumb to temptation, when we forget who we are, we know that we have an advocate. We know that Jesus is on our side. He is always standing with us, even though we're not always standing with him. We may continue to sin here on earth, but thanks be to God, Christ continues to intercede and advocate for us in heaven. And that keeps us from despair. It keeps us from giving up. It gives us the power to press on in our life, even when we fail. So Christ's ascension helps us now, but it also gives us hope for the future. And this is where we'll end here. As we have seen, Christ lives to make intercession for us, but he's not the only one who's working full-time with us in mind. In the book of Revelation, we are told that Satan is working day and night all the time 
to accuse us, to accuse us brothers and sisters before God. He hates God. He hates God's people. He wants God to reject us. And so he's continually lobbying accusations and charges against God's elect. I don't know about you, but I can look at my own life. I consider my own life. And I know that he's got a lot to work with. There's a lot of evidence that is not in my favor when it comes to what Satan can be charging me with. And so on my own, on our own, we have no hope. We are guilty. We deserve condemnation. That's all true if we are on our own. But we are not all on our own. Jesus is living and interceding for us day and night. And through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he has overcome the enemy. And so we do not stand condemned. On the last day, if we are in Christ, there is no condemnation for us. We have no fear that the charges that Satan, are, that Satan is lobbying against us will stand. They will fall because Christ has defeated them all for us. And so let's rejoice knowing that and close with these words from Romans 8, the end of Romans 8, verses 33 through 34. These are words of tremendous encouragement and hope for sinners like us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Please pray with me. Father, we are, when we confess that we are sinners, that we have sinned, we have fallen short, we have missed the mark, that we have chosen things that bring us pleasure rather than things that bring you pleasure. But in one moment, we confess and repent of that, Lord, and we cling with faith and trust and hope in knowing that we are not on our own that your spirit is working within us. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is working within us to make us more like you, to give us new desires, new wants, new lives. Lord, I ask that for me, I ask that for every person in this room, that your spirit would be revealing sin in our lives and that we would put that sin to death and choose righteousness over unrighteousness by the power of your spirit. And Lord, we rest in knowing that if and when we fail, if and when we continue to fall short in this life, that you will not leave us on the side of the road. Jesus, your intercession, your advocacy for us based on what you have done is, a, is our firm foundation for our hope that we will be eternally with you and that our sins have been wiped away and that your work is acceptable in our place so that we can be with you forever. 
Lord, help us to live that way now. Lord, give us hope for the life to come with you in your kingdom. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.